Thank you. It is so good to see all of you. And um, as Pastor Justin has said, happy Mother's Day. I'm reminded of a quote by President Lincoln. Now, we're not preaching a Mother's Day message today, but I was reminded of this. That great president said, all that I am, all that I hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. And I thought that's a good, a good quote from a good source. And let's continue with God's work of grace in our lives today as we continue with fullness, great words of the Christian faith. Uh, let's begin with our Lord's Prayer. Do we have it on the screen today? Yes. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We had a little slide trouble first service. That happens from time to time. So I said, well, we all know it. And then I led us in uh, what sounded like about 14 versions of the Lord's Prayer. So um, <clears throat> it was good to have the slide back up. Thank you guys for finding that for us. Um, we have been this year... Uh, and boy, isn't this year going fast? It really is. But we have been talking about fullness. And every time you see that graphic behind me or on the screen in some other setting, we want you to ask yourself the question, where am I? It's not a condemning question. It's just one to keep us leaning forward. Uh, am I this full, this full, this full? How full am I? And it may be that it's more difficult to decide where we are than we might think, but the goal is that we are seeking fullness, to be more, more like Him. We uh, have recently had a break uh, because of the holy days, and um, we talked about Palm Sunday and Easter, and we spent three weeks talking about surviving spiritual assaults, and I Hope that's been helpful for you. Thank you, Pastor Corey, for taking last week <coughs> while I was gone for a wedding. Uh, it was such a great job. And uh, I heard so many good things from you, and then I got to listen as well online. But uh, we want to go back to the words. Now, I'm going to take just a couple of minutes to do just a, the briefest of reviews to bring you up to speed. And setting the stage, we said that um, we spent three weeks talking about words that reflect the choice. It's our choice. Now, we also know that even though it's our choice, God, the Holy Spirit, has to initiate it in us. This isn't a, us and God getting together for a good idea. He draws. The Spirit reveals truth. And we have the opportunity to respond, to make a choice. And the choice is explained three ways. We have the opportunity to repent. We are able to receive faith and express faith. And then we are able to live and make confession. We confess our sin, but we also confess our faith. So those are the words that reflect the choice. Then there were words that reflect the change. 
the change. Because of our choice, a change occurs and we are regenerated, we're born again. We are adopted into the family of God. Um, and we are converted from one operating system to another. Uh, so those are the words that reflect the change. Today, we're going to do the study a little different. We've been taking one word at a time. I'm going to take four words today. Don't worry, that doesn't mean I'm going to preach for four hours, um, unless you want me to. But uh, I'm not seeing any votes for that. Um, but these four words, we're going to explain why we're doing that in just a moment. These are the words that reflect the consequence. I've made a choice. God has made a change in us. And the consequence is explained by these four words. This is what we can measure, what we can see, what we can look at. Um, so salvation occurs from the interaction of human choice, responding, and then the resulting divine change. And at that point of interaction, we unite with God and become a new Christian. Now, by the way, let me say this, or, or a new creation, I should say. Um, you also have this card, Great Words of the Christian Faith. Um, by the time we get through these 13 words or so, you'll be able to have a one-sentence definition, in some cases, two-sentence definition. It's a, just a vocabulary guide uh, because we know we've been forgiven. We know that we've been adopted. We know that we've been converted. But sometimes we don't know how to explain that, and especially when we're witnessing to our friends that might not have a Christian background. So we're going to give you this card each week as we add a word. And by the time we get through the next section, um, you'll have all the 13 or 14 words. I keep saying 13 or 14 because the last two words I'm trying to decide if, if, if there's sufficient difference to make them uh, two words or go with one. But uh, this will be something you'll want to keep and it'll be something that'll be a good refresher for you to remember the mighty work that God has done and to be able to put it in a very um, concise form. Now, these four words we're going to talk about today give real clarity to this uh, idea of the divine and human relationship. We see it highlighted in four words. Now, let me give you those four words and then we'll take them one at a time. First of all, we receive forgiveness. And forgiveness is seen as the removal of a barrier. The removal of a barrier. Justification is seen as the acquittal of a defendant. Now, I need to give you some qualifiers along with that because the modern Perry Mason, Matlock courtroom scene that we're familiar with in America is not the setting of the ancient world. But it was very much a legal setting, but uh, without a lot of the frills and, and quite frankly, liberties that we have associated with it. Redemption is seen as the emancipation of a slave or a servant. Uh, and we're going to talk just briefly about two or three types of slavery that are mentioned in the Bible. Uh, but all of them have this in common. There is oppression. There's a loss of freedom. There's a loss of choice and limitation of movement. And then the final word, reconciliation, is seen as the restoration of the alienated. It's the idea of relationships being restored. 
um, you know, and people all over America today are going to go home to mom or mom's coming to their house and there's, that's going to be such tension in the air. You can cut it with a knife because they don't have a good relationship and a fight will break out over the shape of the ladle and the gravy bowl. And, uh, you know, and because there is alienation and it's tough when you try to celebrate something when there's alienation in it. But salvation talks about the removal, uh, or not the removal, but uh, Freudian slip, not the removal of those from whom we're alienated, but the restoration of relationship. Uh, the alienated parties come together. Now, why are we doing these four words? These words are studied together because uh, for two reasons. Number one, these four words are the least abstract of all 14 words that we'll look at. In other words, the people of uh, ancient times, just like us, had to struggle a little bit to get their head around the idea of being born again, regenerated. Even Nicodemus, the great leader of Israel, struggled with the concept. So the other words are magnificent, but they are so otherworldly that, um, and I don't know that how good a job I did, but we felt like we needed to give an entire Sunday to each word to be sure that we were trying to explain them well. These four words are the least abstract. So when the gospel preachers and Jesus himself talked about forgiveness, he talked about justification, especially Paul. He talked about redemption and reconciliation. These were concepts that were part of everyday life and it was easy for everyone to grasp what was being meant. For instance, we'll talk about this at the end. Whenever Jesus talked about forgiveness, they understood. They understood that forgiveness it wasn't a get out of jail free card. It wasn't fire insurance. It meant that a barrier had been removed. Something that I couldn't move had been removed. Uh, justification it really led us toward the idea of confidence because they, the judicial system, you were guilty or innocent at the whim of someone who had all authority. And, and they could say you're guilty of all of this. They could say you're guilty of none of this. In those days, the authority could even say, I think you're innocent, but I don't like the way you comb your hair. So you're going to jail anyway. I mean, it really was. Our, our judicial system... Is, is not perfect, I know that, but it is head and shoulders above what it was in the ancient world. And the idea of justification meant that I could now walk out of here with confidence. I could walk out with confidence, we'll talk about that. Redemption carries with it the idea of freedom. I'm no longer restricted in rights or movement. And reconciliation talked about relationship. Um, the, the degree to which you and I will become overcoming Christians is directly hinged to and tied to the idea of our understanding of relationship. Christians, I don't know of any Christians to speak of that have a problem understanding God's power. I, I know a few Christians that say God can't do that, but they are eaten alive by Will he do that? Will he do that for me? And it's a difficult thing to walk in this thing called grace 
and to know the agape love of God when you don't understand the relationship that we have with him and it's foundational. So we're going to talk about those, those four things. They're the least abstract and Secondly, they are the most easily misunderstood. Whenever those four terms were talked about, everybody said, oh yeah, that's like, you know, well, we'll talk about that. Uh, That's why the story in uh, John's gospel, I think it is, where the man who who received a sight, he was born blind, and you read that, that long dissertation in the gospel of John, and it's like they're trying to drag him into theological discussions and philosophical grids and, and intellectual arguments. And who's responsible for this? Why was this man born blind? Was it the sin of his parents or was it his own sins? And the Pharisees are just adding layer upon layer upon layer. And the man said, I don't know. I don't know how to answer your questions, but this I do know. I was blind, but now I see. And salvation is, so much of it is beyond our comprehension, but we accept it by faith. But so much of it is, I don't know all the ins and outs. I don't want to stay after church and have theological discussions about supralapsarianism or about Calvinism or, or all the other isms. I just, I don't want to, I know this, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I'm see, I see. So with that in mind, let's look at the four words and we're going to give them as simple a definition as possible. And remember, we don't need to make these difficult. We just need to understand them from the way the uh, ancient mind would have seen them. Here's number one, forgiveness. Forgiveness is the removal of every barrier that has kept me from approaching God with confidence and assurance. See, forgiveness is more than I'm not gonna get punished. That's wonderful. That's where our mind runs to start with. I'm not gonna get a spanking for this. I'm not gonna go to hell for this. My, my, I, I am forgiven. Yeah, that's true, but it's much more than that. It's the removal of every barrier. It's the removal of every barrier that keeps us from approaching God with confidence and assurance. I remember when I lived in Florida after a storm trying to get to a relative's house to check on them. And there was a rather large tree that had fallen across the road. You know, it just something classic, like out of a movie. But there was no place for me to go. There was, a, there was no other road without going miles and miles and miles out of the way. And this was the main road. I figured if I have a chance at all, it'll be on this road. But I looked, I, I, I tried to go around, kind of down into the ditch and nearly got stopped. And I was in a truck, but I was afraid that I was going to damage the truck trying to push the tree out of the way. I tried it anyway, and the thing just barely, barely budged. And I thought, I can't get to my aunt's house. I am just stuck. And then along came uh, some boy. I I can't remember his name, but it was two first names. I remember that. And uh, he had everything on that truck. He probably lived in that truck. 
And he said, you having a problem? I said, yeah, I'm trying to get to, told him the community. He said, oh, that ain't no problem. And he hooked, he had a, a, a winch on the front of his truck. He hooked it up, backed up, flipped a switch. And in less than 60 seconds, I was going where I needed to go. Why? Because the barrier had been removed. See, loved ones, forgiveness is not just no punishment. Forgiveness is not just no hell. Forgiveness realizes that forgiveness is not this. You know, we don't just say God looks at us and says, oh, it's all right, don't worry about it, you're forgiven. Don't worry about your sin. Loved ones, sin is very real. And we must worry about sin. It's not something that God dismisses with just saying, oh, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It's always a big deal. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross. Our sin is a big deal. And we need to understand that forgiveness does not make light of treason against the creator of the universe. But forgiveness says there is a barrier that you can't move. There's something you can't overcome. There's something that you can't deal with. But forgiveness says, I will remove the barrier. For instance, even uh, in the Old Testament, forgiveness was seen. I think this is in your notes to carry off or put away. Is that in your notes? Okay. To carry off or put away that which is offensive. Carry off or put away that which is offensive. It's a hindrance to our progress, but it is moved out of the way. It means to cover something by covering or concealing it, but more than just like putting a tarp over it, it means that it is effectively removing the object from consideration. Whenever God said that he will remember our sins no more or that they are cast into the sea of his forgetfulness or in another passage it says our sins are put behind God's back. Um, I grew up thinking, well, God is God, but he can't remember something when he forgives it. You know, it's, it's out of his mind. He can't remember it. And, and I know that God can do that. I mean, God can do anything he wants. You know, a lot of times people say something they think is so witty and so in intellectual. They say, if God can do anything, can God make a rock that God can't move? And they expect us to go, ah, ah, my faith is collapsing. And we start melting like the witch in the Wizard of Oz. Can God make a rock that God cannot move? That's the response they expect. My response is a little different. Can God make a rock that he can't lift? If he wants to, God can do anything. You say, I can't figure that out. How can God make a rock if he can't move it? And I said, I, God can do anything. I'm not worried about that. We need to be more like Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens. He said, there's a lot of the Bible I don't understand. A lot. He said, what has me worried is the part of the Bible I do understand. And loved ones, instead of trying to have these intellectual philosophical arguments about what God can or cannot do, we need to understand that God said, as far as your sin is concerned, it will be as though, in other words, he says, it'll never be brought to the table again. You know what it's like. You, you got behind on your bills and you missed some payments and it hurt your credit score. And then you go to buy a house or you go to get an upgrade on your credit card or you go to buy a car and something from years ago can come up. 
It, it can come up. It's like somebody says, well, you may be doing okay now, but we remember what you did or what you didn't do. See, God says, your sins are no longer brought to the table. He says, I'm removing the object from consideration. Does God actually forget our sin? Can God do that? He can do what he wants to. But I will tell you this. I don't think we have to believe that God cognitively forgets our sin. We don't have to, to celebrate forgiveness. We don't have to say, God can't even remember it. Lord, you remember that time I went out and got drunk? You, you don't? I didn't think so. You know, no, he doesn't have to have the inability to remember. This is what this word means. He says he may remember, but it never comes to the table again. That's like you get in an argument with your wife. Oh, you don't ever do this. But if an argument with your spouse gets worse, or, there's two phrases you want to avoid. You always, it's an appeal to the past. You never it's an appeal to the past. No, when we forgive, that's why people are so deceived when they say, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. Well, you haven't forgiven because forgiveness by its very definition means you agree to never bring it to the table again. It means to wipe something or remove the stain of it. I, I am not an old guy. I am not a feeble guy, but I have developed a wonderful habit and that is whatever I eat ends up on my shirt sooner or later. Um, and and I, it doesn't matter how careful I am. It doesn't matter how careful I am. It's going to end up the shirt. And the lighter, more important the shirt is, the more likely it's going to end up. I have designer ties. Every tie I have is designer because it's the original design. And then it's potato soup. Then it's... Uh, I have a wonderful collection of lasagna-based ties. It's so bad that my children want me to start wearing an adult bib every time. And I, I said, I don't want to wear a bib out in public. I don't, I don't want to do that. I said, somebody will come over and want to feed me. I just, I just don't want to do that. But I'll tell you, they'll nag me. They'll nag me. Daddy, go home and change shirts. Go home and change shirts. Put on your black shirt, put on, your, put on a t-shirt. And um, that's, I have been seen in restaurants in Columbia wearing a suit and a black t-shirt for that very reason. Do you know why? Because they know how difficult it is to wipe away or remove the stain of something. But forgiveness says, when I deal with you and I forgive you, it'll be as though the stain were never there. He said, your sins, though they be red like scarlet, will be white like wool and like snow. They'll be cleaner than snow. And God says, I'm able to take the stain away. I like that translation that says whiter than snow. And I, I thought, boy, growing up in the South, I only saw snow a few times in my childhood. And I thought, what could be whiter than snow unless it's maybe the, the sands of Pensacola Beach? But what I found out when I moved up to the Midwest I found out that snow is beautiful and it is luxuriously white. But I also found out at the core of every snowflake is a little piece of dirt or dust. And in fact, when it starts me uh, melting, you find out that snow is deceptively dirty because its whole existence is based 
on a little impurity. And God said, I am so able to forgive your sin that even the unseen impurity will be wiped away. That's forgiveness. Um, it means to eliminate or cancel an indebtedness. And man, we all know what it's like to have a debt forgiven or you have a bill from the hospital and they say, well, we've adjusted this and you owe nothing. That's forgiveness. Um, it, there's also forgiveness is seen as the decision not to enforce a penalty. The penalty is legitimate. The penalty is just but someone with the authority to do so says, I will not enforce this. I will forgive the debt or I will forgive the offense. Um, it also means to care for someone who is in difficulty by being generous, gracious, or merciful. By being generous, gracious, or merciful. I saw something in a restaurant not too long ago. I thought it was, or uh, not a restaurant. I was thinking of my shirt in a grocery store not too long ago. A, a lady <clears throat> with a little toddler um, on, on her hip and a little, looked like a newborn in the buggy, had bought all kinds of stuff for her kids and a little bit for herself. And she got up there and uh, she got the thing rang up. There was a total. And then, I mean, I know people can scam you, but she, just, she began to cry. She said, I can't find my money. I can't find my money. It was in my purse. It's not there. And um, there was a person between me and her, and I thought, oh, Lord, I'm going I, 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 to buy that. I may be being scammed, but I'm going to pay for that. And th then before I could do that and get the credit and tell you I paid for her food, the person in front of us said, oh, let me take care of it. And she said, no, 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 no. And the person said, yes, I'll, I'll take care of it. Uh, and that person, in effect, forgave her debt because he helped someone that was in difficulty by being generous, gracious, or merciful. And it, it was probably, if I remember something, it was, on, it was less than $100, but it was the better part of $100. And a person who didn't even know them said, I will help you out of your difficulty. I'll pay what you cannot pay. That's forgiveness. Okay. Now, we need to understand that the forgiveness is the removal of a barrier. When Jesus said, you are forgiven, the people of his day understood that the penalty is paid by someone else. Not that the penalty was dismissed. That's one of the biggest misconceptions about salvation. The penalty for our sin is not dismissed. The penalty for our sin was paid by Jesus. Sin is so egregious. Sin is so destructive. It ruined not only humanity and the earth itself. It ruined the whole cosmos. And it had to be atoned for. God did not say, he could have, he did not say, oh, just don't worry about it. No, he said, it must be paid for, but if you will put your trust in me, I will pay for it through Jesus Christ and his, and his work on the cross. So it's the removal of a barrier. Justification, let's hurry. Justification is the dropping of all condemning charges against me. Now guys, we don't understand how, how big the dropping of charges is. Um, now I grew up with the definition justified means justified, never sin. And, and, and that's true. That's true. But it just doesn't begin to go deep enough. 
And I don't know how we adequately explain it to our children without really explaining ancient culture to them. But this is not a picture of a modern Western courtroom. There's no jury. There are no witnesses to help. There are no plea deals. There are no releases. There are no paroles, no technicalities, no extenuating circumstances. You don't make your case before a, a group of your peers and hopefully they'll have mercy on you. You don't lean into a judge for mercy in sentencing. And I, I, as I said, I know our, our, our judicial system isn't a perfect one, but as one who's traveled around the world, I'd, I'd, I'd rather take my chances here than most places. But, if even, but even, then, even then it's not perfect. But in those days, and there were, there were exceptions, each country had its laws, and, and there were some steps in different directions. But generally speaking, in the ancient world, you stood before a king who had total power, or a magistrate who answered to no one. The idea of appearing before a judge that could say, Justin, I don't think you did any of these things but I remember the way you treated my brother one time. So you're guilty. You're going to pay the price. See, there was no code of laws to control the judge. There was no code of precedent to determine judgment. This person had no uh, restrictions on him whatsoever. You know, uh, we say, well, we've got to do our, our, you know, as Americans, we've got to do this, 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 and this. And I agree. We need to do everything we can in the system of our democracy to do everything we can to be sure that justice is done and to be sure that our rights are preserved. I don't have any problem with that. But do you know how Paul dealt with their political situation? Honor the king. Honor the king. Well, there must be something you can do. Yeah, you can honor the king. You can honor the king. You see, we have to remember before we start buying into systems and putting our trust in systems, the early Christians had no recourse, they had no defense attorneys. Um, and you say, well, there were lawyers in those days. Yes, but they were skilled in the law to condemn you, not to release you. And this, this is the picture of justification. You have the deck stacked against you. You don't have a chance in the world. But the judge says, all charges are dropped. All charges are dropped. You see, in the Old Testament, the emphasis was on law. In the New Testament, the emphasis is on grace. And I, I think we make false distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Um, the Old Covenant was completed in the New. The New didn't eradicate the Old. The New completed the Old. And the Old set a context for us to understand the New. But if you're not careful, you, you will miss the subtle distinction that the law was flawed in this respect. Not that the law itself was flawed. Man, read Psalm 19. The, the, the law of the Lord is perfect concerning uh, uh, converting the soul. 
more to be desired are they than gold and silver, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. Read Psalm 119 where every verse out of those 160 some odd verses except two, every verse is a, is a praise of the law of God. The, but the law was weak in this respect. The law did exactly what it was designed to do. It showed us what God demanded and it showed us that we could not fulfill it. The law was a schoolmaster that brought us to the real master, which was the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, you were in a system where you were commanded to keep the law and to keep it perfectly. The only problem is you could not possibly do it. So God brings into the mix grace. Now, I know grace had always existed. I know that. I, I don't have time every Sunday to talk about every ramification of every statement. I know grace always existed. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I know that. But we are in a system where we understand this is what God is. This is what God expects of me. And the success rate is zero, except for Jesus. So we have this thing called grace. And grace is not only God's good will toward us. You know, we talked about the unmerited favor. Grace is God's will toward us, but grace is also God's good work in us. I am declared holy and God helps me live a holy life because of grace. And that is what we call justification. The charge can be brought against you. The enemy can lay things at your feet. But God says we have already declared him justified. There's already been something that met the need. In the Old Testament, the emphasis was on works. And of course, there was faith in the Old Testament too. But we understand that human nature seeks to earn favor by good deeds. That's works. But faith rests completely in the work of someone else. I am not going to find the grace of God. I'm not going to find the mercy of God because I keep the law because I will fail every single time. And anybody that argues with that cannot point the finger to anybody that has kept the law. It doesn't have that ability. Except Jesus, of course. It doesn't have that ability. But that's where faith comes in. And faith says, I am, I am justified even when you bring the law against me because I wear the righteous robe of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament way of being godly was to keep the law hopefully without failure, or at least to the best of your ability. And if a man did not keep the, uh, the law, he was considered to be ungodly. But now I am considered godly, not because of my high batting average with the Old Testament. I am considered godly because I have trust in Jesus and everything that I am or ever hope to be rests upon his work. You say, well, well, that's why Jesus said the law was bad. And that's why Jesus said that the Pharisees, you're in trouble because you're, you're trusting you know, in the law. Jesus never said that. Jesus never had anything negative to say about the law. Paul made it clear. Jesus loved the law. The law of the Lord is perfect, but we're not. We're not. The law says, this is what God is. The law says, this is what God demands. And grace says, you can't do it 
without me. You can't do it without me. What Jesus was speaking against was the oral law, the law of the rabbis. He said, you have taken the laws of men and you've made it equal or more than the laws of God. That law is destructive because it doesn't even show the father. It doesn't show what he demands. It shows what you demand. And you have burdened people with loads that they, neither they nor your fathers, neither you have been able to bear. (coughs) But I've come to show grace. Now here's the third word, okay? Number one, forgiveness is the removal of a barrier. Key words, removal. Um, Justification is confidence. It's the acquittal of a defendant. And, and what it means basically, we'll talk more about this as we wrap this up. Basically, I can go before the Lord confident that I will not be rejected. <coughs> Excuse me. In fact, let me just go ahead and say this when we talk about justification and, and confidence. Um, when the Bible says, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. A lot of people want you to think that means go in there, you got rights. You got rights. Go in there, if you need $1,000, go in boldly and say, Lord, I want one, but I'd like to have two, therefore three would be better. Give me three, I ask boldly in the name of Jesus. That's what we like to call arrogance. That is not faith. To say boldly, come to the throne of grace, contextually it means this. You have to go back to Esther maybe to get a good picture of it. She said, I know what I need. I know what my people need. And I'm going to go before the king. But he hasn't called for me. It's not my time to go there. And she's a hero to us because she said, if I perish, I perish. And that was indeed courageous of that lady to do. But that's the way we do Christianity. If I perish, I perish. I'll go down praying for you because I don't know. You know, I know God's got power. I just don't know if God is willing. He hasn't called for me. No, to go boldly before the throne of grace means I approach without a fear of being rejected. It, It doesn't even mean that I know I'll have what I want because sometimes we ask amiss. And sometimes we ask for the wrong thing or sometimes we have the wrong timing. That's another sermon for another time. But we know that even when we ask wrong, the Lord in his graciousness will, will forgive that and will, and will work us toward a solution. I was reading in my devotion this week. Lord, I think it was James and John, I think it was. Um, we want you to, to give us whatever it is we ask. And... You know, kind of a little arrogant. Whatever we, I mean, they're setting the conditions before they make the request. Whatever it is we ask for now, whatever it is, we want you to do it for us. And you know what, Jesus Jesus could have said, that's not theologically sound. That's, that's not the way the kingdom of God operates. No, I will give you a 78% probability. No, you know what Jesus did? He said, well, what are you asking for? He, even when we're wrong, he, he, is so, he is so welcoming of our prayer. He, he says, well, tell me what you're asking for. Well, we want to sit on one on your right hand, one on your left when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, 
Are you able to really attain to that? Are you able to drink the cup that I'll drink? Are you able to go through the baptism of fire that I'll go through? See, he's teaching them now. He's welcomed them. And then he's teaching them. This is a, this is a costly thing you're asking for. And they said, yep, we're able. And I thought right then, I read it and I think, oh. But you know what Jesus said? He said, yeah, you will. You'll drink the cup. You'll go through the baptism that I am going to go through. And I'm thinking, well, you know, and they're probably thinking, "Ah, we're in. And then Jesus brought the closing statement. But to determine who sits on my right and my left, that's the prerogative of the Father. I don't give that right to anyone. That's the decision of the Father. You see, loved ones, do you realize how bold and arrogant it would have been to come and say, Jesus, we want you to do anything that we want to, uh, that we ask of you, if they didn't have confidence that they would be received. And loved ones, I want you to know, even if we are not worthy, even if we're asking amiss, the Lord gives us such a welcome into his presence that he'll explain to us. He'll say, no, but this is the way we'll go. Jesus said to the man, um, do you believe that I'm uh, able to to help you? And he said, because anything can happen for those who have faith. And the man gave the worst Pentecostal prayer he could uh, answer he could give. He'd be thrown out of most of our faith conferences if he had written this on his response card. He said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I got a battle going on here. And so what did Jesus do? He acknowledged that the man had a battle, but he didn't disqualify him. He did what the man asked for, even though his faith was not perfect. Loved ones, that's why we have to move to a place where we have confidence in our ability to approach God. It doesn't mean confidence that he's always going to say yes. It doesn't mean confidence that he's always going to say yes, I'll do it now. But it means that we know we are welcome and we're not going to be rejected from his presence even though our request may be flawed. See, we as Christians today, generally, we don't have an issue over whether God can. The battle we have is over whether he will. Oh, I know he did it for Elijah, but I'm no Elijah. Will he do it for me? Oh, I know he did it for Corey, but will he do it for me? Uh, Lord, I know that you welcome little children, but will you do it for me? And the wonderful thing that I, that I want to tell you is that this idea of justification, it, it, the, the beauty of justification is its byproduct. You have confidence that nothing can be brought up against you because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has said your record's clean. In that sense, it's just as if I'd never sinned. But it's not just the forgetting of a sin. It's a cleansing of the record. And it changes your relationship. He wants us to come boldly to the throne of grace. Because it's at the throne of grace we find grace to help in time of need. Here's the third word. Y'all are going to have to do better than this if we're going to get through. The third word is redemption. Now, redemption is the full payment of all I owe spiritually so that I'm no longer in servitude or bondage. Now, 
you say, well, slavery isn't. Slaves weren't slaves because of what they owed. They were slaves because of oppression. I, I understand that. And there are, there are about four types of slavery in the scripture. Um, but in, in Israel, it was forbidden to have a slave who was just a slave. There, was, there were reasons for slavery, or we'll call it servitude because it, it's a little different than what we think of as just oppressive slavery. Some slavery is just oppression. It's the oppress, oppression of one class over another class or one race over another race or one group in the same race over a group of the same race. It's, it's oppression. It's not based on any reason. It's just oppression. It's wrong. It's always been wrong. It'll always be wrong. It curses any uh, uh, group that embraces it. Slavery is oppression and it's wrong. But there was some slavery in Israel that they gave guidelines for, and it was the slavery of the legal system. In other words, if I couldn't pay my debt today in our culture, we'd go bankrupt or or, or have some other alternative. But if a judgment was made against you and you couldn't pay, you would be actually sent to servitude, slavery for the person that you owed. And it could not only be you, it could be your family. You remember when Elisha came across the woman that had just the little vial of oil and she couldn't pay her bills and they were about to sell her sons into slavery. That's the way it worked. Uh, it's a judgment against me. It's a punishment of my family. Sometimes there were what we called in the early days in America, we called it indentured servitude. To learn a trade, you, you essentially became someone's servant for seven years or however long to learn a trade. It was like Jacob working seven years for his wife and then working seven years for his second wife. He, and for all intents and purposes, though he had his family, he was an indentured servant. Now, the other kind of slavery that you find in the Old Testament is that you were a prisoner of war. Some of you were a conquest. Some of the people that Israel conquered that were allowed to live could live if they were to be made into slaves. And even in the New Testament, when you read 1 Corinthians 7, don't let me lose you here. This is important because we need to understand the, the broad scope of slavery or servitude. Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers in the, in the Roman culture, in the Greek culture, and he said, some of you are slaves. In fact, we know that a good number of Christians uh, in, in, outside of Israel, a good number of them were slaves. And they were married to people that they didn't want to be married to because the master decided who would marry who. They lost children that you and I would never think in terms of losing our children. It was horrible. It was so bad when you read 1 Corinthians 7, Paul said, look, this is not right. This is like trying to unscramble eggs. He said, I know this is wrong. And he gave this bit of advice. He said, if you can get out of slavery any way you can, get out of it. It's counterproductive. It's heavy. It's oppressive. Get out of slavery if you can. Do it if you can. But if you can't, then know that the Lord will help you. And know that God will give you grace to go through. It was a nightmare. 1 Corinthians 7 is a, is, a, is a depressing chapter because he's talking about all of these laws and all of these arrangements that nobody wanted but had been dumped upon them by slavery. 
Now, what does New Testament Roman slavery, what does slavery as prisoners of war or conquest, what does slavery as a debtor, what does slavery as oppression, they're all different, but what does it have in common? And when he talked about being redeemed, what did it mean? You go back and you understand uh, Hosea buying his wife out of sexual slavery. The, the thing that all of this has in bondage is, uh, uh, has in common, I gave the answer away, the thing that all of this has in common is bondage and oppression. And Jesus taught us, the New Testament writers taught us, that when Christ redeemed you, he may not always change your outer circumstances, but you are no longer in bondage to anything. What did he say to the servant that could buy his freedom? He said, good, if you can buy your freedom, be the Lord's freedman. If you have to remain in slavery, realize that you are the Lord's servant and realize that he has made you free. And he spoke to those, that, that's a tough thing for a pastor to say to somebody that was not in the mess he was, uh, that, that was in the mess he was not in. He said, I know this, that even if your outer circumstances are not good, you have been redeemed and you are no longer in bondage to anything. Because God lifts you out of that. He lifts you above that. That's why Jesus said it and it stirred up such a following. And we, we just, we just kind of read over it. But he said, whoever the son sets free is free indeed. And he wasn't just saying, oh boy, if I set you free, you're really free. No, he was saying every dynamic of your life, you are free. You may be fighting cancer, but you are free. You may be fighting the consequences of sin, but you are free. You may be in a bad situation, but you are free. So he says, I want you to know that when God saves you, the barriers to you and God are all removed. The stain of it is removed. The consideration of it is removed. I want you to know that the king of all kings has said there will be no more charges brought against you. And he says, I am setting you free. Even though this world may not recognize you're free, you are free because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And then there's the last word. It's the word reconciliation. Reconciliation is a new relationship with God and man so that all former barriers are removed. We said it's the restoration of the alienated and reconciliation has to do with relationship. When we come to Jesus, we are a full part of the family. No half, no step, no X, no whatever. We're all part of the same family. Now, how do we wrap this up? Let's look very quickly at the four takeaways from this. Number one, the idea behind forgiveness is removal. Loved ones, it is the height of self-righteousness to not forgive yourself your sins. No, no, I just know how bad my sins were. No, what you're saying is that the forgiveness of the blood of Jesus was enough to satisfy Almighty God, but it's not enough to satisfy you. You're implying, I know that's not what you're meaning, but you're implying I have a higher sense of righteousness than God does. I have a higher sense of what's right than God does. Let me tell you something. If God has forgiven our sins, we do well to follow in his footsteps. 
and forgive our sins as well. Here's the second thing I want you to remember. The idea behind justification is confidence. He says, there is now, therefore, Romans 8. Romans 8 is the ABC of Christianity. Uh, It's the magnum opus of Paul where he writes about the faith that has been delivered to the saints using the words of Jude. And he explains the mess we're in. He explains what God did. And the peak, the climax of the epistle is Romans 8. And this is how he begins it with verse 1. There is now therefore... Therefore, because of this, when you see a therefore, go back and see what it's there for. All of this stuff he wrote through chapters 1 through 7, the fall of man, the wickedness of man, the inherent evil of man, the inability of man to measure up to the law. He said, oh, who shall deliver me from this body of death? He paints a picture that there's no way out. And then one little verse comes to the top. I thank God that the victory has been won through Jesus Christ. Then we go into chapter eight and he says, therefore, because of this, I know what I was. I know what I did. I know I had no way out. But because of Jesus, because of Jesus, there is now therefore no condemnation. Greek, there's no katakrima. No judgment against me. There's no charges pending. He doesn't put it in the drawer and say, be good and we'll see about getting rid of these permanently. No. There is now, therefore, no judgment against those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the pinnacle of the book of Romans. And again, justification says I can have confidence. I am never going to face my sin again. The idea behind redemption is freedom. Nothing from my past, present, or even my future hinders my movement before God. And number four, the idea behind reconciliation is relationship. There's two phrases I want to just point out to you. One, Paul said, because of all of this, we approach him saying, Abba, Abba, Daddy, Father, Now, I know on Mother's Day and Father's Day, uh, the first 30 years of my pastoral ministry, probably, Mother's and Father's Day, maybe not that long, but Mother's Day and Father's Day were the toughest days to preach because you wanted to focus on the love of a father and you wanted to focus on the love of a mother. And I found out in those early days that that, uh, there were a lot of people that could not relate to the love of a father. They could not relate to the love of a mother. Their father was a rapist. Their father was a molester. Their father was a drunken uh, whatever that never took care of his family. He was an absent father. So when I say, oh, understand how much God loves you, just think of his love for you as father, they wanted to vomit. I had a lady that did literally vomit when on Mother's Day I said, God, God is, is not only is he a father, but he loves us like a mother. And she started retching and throwing up. And that'll, that'll really build your confidence as a pastor. <laughs> and and another, I had another one that screamed out, it's not that easy, and stormed out of the church. I didn't know what was going on. And the reason I didn't understand is I had a 
I had a world-class daddy. I had a world-class mother. I couldn't think of someone having problems with calling God their father until I heard some of the stories, until I heard some of the nightmare. I, I couldn't think of anybody having trouble with saying God loves you like a mother loves their child. I, I, I just, I couldn't understand that. And I realized that maybe here, maybe online, maybe in Brown Chapel, I don't know, maybe you'll be listening to this later, but I'm telling you that God says, I want you to know you can approach me. I want you to call me daddy and you do not have good memories of daddy. I want to encourage you this way. I'm so sorry for those that do not have the context of a good dad or the context of a good mom. I'm not taking that lightly. That is grievous. And dads, I want to tell you your greatest responsibility I want to tell every father in this place and grandfathers, I want to tell you the same thing. Our greatest responsibility is that our children can understand the love of God because they see the way we love them. That is an awesome responsibility. It is the number one responsibility of a father. And I know that none of us are perfect, but the, the thing that is the biggest responsibility in my family life is that when my children and my grandchildren look at me, they say, that's why I want to serve God. Because that's the way my heavenly father is. And you need to, you need, I'm, I'm sorry, but you need to be careful with what you think is spare the rod and spoil the child. You need to really think through a lot of things that are outgrowths of your personality because some of us are producing the image of God that's a hard man. Mothers, your responsibility is a little bit differently. And we get into arguments around our house, which is greater, the love of the father or the love of a mother. So we just concede on Mother's Day, the mother's love is greater. On Father's Day, the father's love is greater. And the rest of the time, we're just in competitions. You know, who can outlove? But I realize, I realize that some of you have baggage. And I'm not putting you down. I know that is real. But I want to say this to you. Don't let your pain from a poor father or a poor mother block the love of the Father. Let me read a couple of verses to you and we're done. Romans, or passages. Romans 5, 6, 8. Paul writes something that's incredible before he gets to this Romans 8 discovery. He said, now I, I've just shown you what you were. All of us were like this. But understand this. He, said, he would say this. While we were yet weak, meaning not weak as in just little muscles. He said, while we were weak and that we had nothing to offer to God. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then in knowing the Jewish mind would run to, well, what's ungodly? I don't know that I'm ungodly. He said, in our culture, he said, we have someone that's godly, meaning they do a pretty good job. He said, it's conceivable to think that someone would give their life for godly man. He said, then we have those that are good. We wouldn't really call them godly, but they're good. He said, it's thinkable that someone would even die for a good man. He said, but you know what we all were? We were the ungodly. 
And this is what he says in Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us when we had absolutely nothing. Now, you say, Pastor, I know that. I know he saved me. But I've just failed him so many times. Like Mary in the chosen. He fixed me once and I've broken again. I love what Jesus said in that response. It wasn't a biblical verse, but it was a biblical principle. He said, well, you know, it's really not much of a redemption if you can lose it in a day. And this is what Paul said to those who... I know that God can. I know that the Bible's true. See, that's where most of us are. Most of us aren't. I don't believe God can do that. I don't believe, you know, we have a very high regard of God. We just forget to take him at his word in regard to us. I tell you, when my kid, I mean, I didn't get mad at him. I didn't punish him. But it kept me up at night when my dad, when my children would say, Daddy, do you promise you're going to, you know, my response was, well, what, what have I done that they would think I have to cross my heart and hope to die to keep my word? You know, what, what, what have I, it even got to the point where I began to say to my children, I don't promise, but I'm telling you, I will do that. If God helps me, I will do that. I'm not making a promise. Um, not that I think promises are bad, but I said, I don't want you to think that when I say I promise, that's a magic thing. We're going to do what I said we're going to do because I said we're going to do it. And this is, to me, I had done something wrong if my kids didn't believe I was going to do what I said. That's where most of us are. We believe that God can. We believe he'll do it for so-and-so. We believe he'll do it for Bethel Ministries, or we believe he'll do it for the pastor, or we believe he'll do it for Billy Graham, or whatever. We believe that God is able and that he will for some, but will he for me? Listen to Paul's response to that in that beautiful chapter of Romans 8. He who did not spare, he's talking about how nothing can separate us from the love of God. He who did not spare his own son. He's talking about even if we don't know how to pray, the spirit himself will make intercession through us with groanings that cannot be understood by the natural mind. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. This is Romans 8.32. See, he says, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up through the cross for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And in South Carolina vernacular, what he's saying is this, how in the world can you believe that God would give his best on the cross and then think for some petty reason he's unwilling to give us everything else that we need? He questions it like it's an insult. He says, I know what you're facing. He says, and you've got to know life and death itself can't separate us from the love of God. Demons can't separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We're in his care. And you need to understand he's already given you the best. 
So why do you not believe he will take care of every other trouble you've got? I don't mean this, and I mean, you can take it this way, and there are times this is probably applicable, but I'm not saying this to say, get in there and pray and ask God for things that you don't have faith for and just let him build your faith. I mean, the disciples said, Lord, increase our faith. I think that's a good prayer to pray sometimes. Nothing wrong with that. But this is not about get in there and believe so you can have more. It's a verse that says, come to him with confidence because you've already demanded the highest that you can have. And he said, yes. Now, whatever else you need, he may not answer it the way you want. He may not answer it in the time you want, but whatever else you need, it's not off the table because he's given your best, his best I remember one time I was talking with someone, not, not in our church, about God taking care of their children. They said, oh, it's just, I don't know if I want to have children. It's such a bad world to have children in. And loveless, it's always been a bad world to have children in since Adam and Eve messed up. I know that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trivializing that. I know it's an awesome responsibility to bring children into this world. I know that. But they said, if I just knew that God would take care of my child, I just need to know nothing's going to happen to my child. And I said, you've survived. He said, yeah, but bad things happen. Yeah, they've always happened. It's, it's, it's the result of sin in the world. And they said, if I just wish I could know. And I've, I've thought of this, and I thought, I don't need to add to their struggle. But I thought of the children of Israel uh, they didn't want to go because, you know, our children are going to die in the wilderness. And God later said, your little ones that you thought I wouldn't take care of, they're going to go in and possess the land instead of you. It was as though God was saying, your children are not a problem. They're not a burden to me. And I love them far more than you love them. And I remembered a story of, uh, that I heard John Dawson tell. Um, uh, yeah, John Dawson. His mother, Joy Dawson, was a, a great writer, and I think she's in heaven now. I'm not sure. Joy, if you're listening and you're here, no, no insult, please. I didn't mean, I didn't mean to imply. I think you're dead, but, but I think she's dead. But <clears throat> John Dawson talked about his little uh, four or five year old son. He said they were eating in a restaurant in Los Angeles. He talks about how God, how much we care for our children but how God cares for them more. And, and I know bad things can happen. I know that. But he, he said, I always had a fear that God would do it for others, but wouldn't do it for me. God would take care of others' children, but wouldn't take care of my children. He said, my little boy, we were sitting around the table talking, and we all of a sudden realized he's gone. Um, he, if I remember the story, he had gone to the restroom with a couple of adults uh, from the table, one of them thought the other one had him. The other one thought the other one had him. They come back to the table and the child's gone. Your mind immediately goes to the worst. And he said, Lord, what do we do? They did everything they knew to do. And he looked out the restaurant window and there were six lanes of traffic. And he thought a child could never escape that. He'll either be picked up or will be run over. But he felt the spirit say, go across the road. And he went across the road, across six lanes of traffic. 
He said, I nearly got hit going across the road. And I find my little boy sitting on a patch of grass with his legs crossed. And he found him. He thanked God. He hugged his child like you would expect him to. And he said, son, what did you do? And I don't remember the child's explanation for going across six lanes of traffic. He, he said, how did you get here? He said, in the middle of the cars all over, a man came up and took my hand and walked me over here. He sat me down. He knew my name. And he said, don't worry, your daddy's coming to get you, but you can't get up and go anywhere. You sit right here. And he said, I think he didn't believe me because he said, you know, I better tie up your legs. <laughs> and he said, he tied up your legs? He said, yeah, look. And his legs were crossed. And he said, <laughs> <laughs> and he said, untie me, Daddy. And he just kind of reached down and did this. And, whew, you know, he's rubbing his legs. And John Dawson said, in the middle of my doubt, in the middle of my fear, God sent an angel to escort my child out of six lanes of traffic and then tied his legs with an invisible rope because even the angel knew my son wasn't going to obey. <laughs> and that little boy sat there with his legs tied by a heavenly rope till daddy could get there. And loved ones, I know there's stories of tragic things. I know that. But listen to what I'm trying to tell you. We spend so much time worrying about, I wonder if he will, that we eat a hole in our soul, not knowing that God loves our children more than we love them. And God has already been to the cross, purchased you with his blood, I don't think there's anything that we need to worry about him not being willing to do. Father, please help us as we try to wrap our heads around these words that reflect the consequences. Lord, please help us. Again, this is not for us to just get more. This is for us to rest in you. This is about us approaching the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that you say whosoever will may come. And you went, you went further and you said, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast them away. Thank you for saying whosoever will may come. Lord, I remember going off of what John Wesley said one time, I think it was John Wesley, Lord, it'd be easy for me to believe if the Bible said Stephen Chitty may come. But then I also realized that if the Bible said Stephen Chitty may come, I would just think it was another Stephen Chitty. But it's me. It's you. It's Janice. It's Jill. It's Joe. It's Chris. It's Talmadge, it's Lucinda. Whosoever will may come and the one who comes I will never cast out. The burden has been lifted and been removed. The judge of all judges has said no more charges. 
no judgment against, no condemnation. All of my bondage has been forgiven and I have been set free by Jesus. And everything that made me an enemy of God is taken away and now I'm your child. And you say, whosoever will may come. Would you stand with me as we end the service today? I want to ask the ministry teams to come, our praise team to come. We're going to be right here. These folks are going to be here to pray for you. This is the way I want us to do the altar time today. Now, if you're online and you want to give your heart to Jesus, you know, you're live streaming or you need prayer, call the number that'll be on your screen. And just if, if it takes a minute to get through, that's okay. Even if you leave a message, we'll call you back. If, it's, if you're in Brown Chapel or you're here in the sanctuary, you may be here and you say, I don't know Jesus as my Savior, but I want to know Him as Savior. I'm coming to you, Lord. Tell the ministry teams that's what you want. Or you may be here and you just may say, Pastor, I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm saved. I know that God is able. That's not my battle. But I know what you're talking about. I'm in a constant battle of not can he, but will he? Will he do it for me? I know he'll do it for the, my neighbor. I know he'll do it for somebody else. But will he do it for me? Loved ones, God, all, uh, almighty God wants you to know that he's already given you the best and whatever else you need, you can bring to him with confidence. Lord, as we leave today, we pray that you'd bless us on this Mother's Day. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May his abundant glory shine out from his face and give you favor. And Lord, may you give us everything that we need to serve you, spirit, soul, and body. But for those who need prayer, let them come. Let them patiently wait before you and let them receive the help of the Lord.